First Peter chapter number two. And so first Peter chapter two. And we're going to begin here in verse number 18. We're just going to read the three verses here to start. I know you got more than that in your notes, but I'm going to back up in just a moment and really capture the context of what's taking place here. Uh, and I, I really, this morning, I, I hope this will just be something that you find that's practical and it's encouraging and challenging as well, but to just help us in our daily lives and interacting in the world in which God has placed us and doing so in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so First Peter chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And I want to speak this morning on this thought, living in an unfair world. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together. Thank you for, Lord, again, just the, the promise, the confidence that we have that when we come together and our hearts are focused on you and your word is open, that you uh, come in the midst of us. And Lord, the only person here at this moment that can hinder you to speak from speaking to me is me. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to invite you even as I pray, to be praying silently, asking you to speak to their hearts. Lord, give us this morning what we need that we might serve you effectively and faithfully in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Christian life is not something that you put on on Sunday. And so a lot of people live that way. A lot of people live uh, and compartmentalize their lives into the spiritual, into the secular, to the familial, to, uh, to the recreational, and will uh, we'll engage with God during Sunday or during uh, uh, maybe on a midweek or special meetings or special events. And then we set them aside. We'll get up and go to work on Monday and we'll block everything else out and we're focused on the job. Then we'll come home and we'll uh, try to uh, leave work at work and be present at home. Or we'll go on vacation and we'll try to set aside that time and kind of forget about all the things that are behind. But that's not what God intended when he gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. As a Christian, I'm a Christian all the time. I never take a break from God. I never go on vacation from God. I never take a day off and where my mindset or goal is, okay, I'm, I'm disengaging. I want to disengage from work. And just to be honest, I don't, on our, when we take a day off uh, every week, we, we try not to uh, even have conversations about things that are going on at the church or events that have to be planned or uh, things that have to be developed or uh, things of that nature. We, we do our best as much as possible to minimize that, to just come apart for that day uh, and to just, to just uh, rest, to rest our hearts, to rest our mind. But that doesn't mean that you rest or take a break from the Lord, but you rather appreciate and enjoy that which God has given you and blessed you with and the relationship uh, that you have with him. I believe that was God's intent whenever he set aside the Sabbath uh, and uh, from, from the very beginning. 
and so that though uh, it is not required by the law, it's still a good practice for a healthy spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, when we look at a, a passage like this, it's just a reminder that when I get up tomorrow, when you get up tomorrow and go to your place of employment, that you're still a Christian. When you have to go to the grocery store, you're a Christian. When you have to go uh, to DPS office and renew your license plate tags and that you're still a Christian. And people are watching. And that's really the message this morning that Peter is conveying as he writes here. And uh, if we were to, if we look back and he starts off in chapter two and he's making this case from, for, to them as they're immature Christians still, those to whom he's reaching out here. And he's telling them as newborn babes in verse two, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. All of us ought to have the attitude that we want to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should never get to the place where we stop growing or stop desiring to grow. Now, I understand some of us get that better than others. Some of you get that better than others. I've been six foot three since I was 13 years old. Okay, so there came a point in time where I'm thinking as a kid, I'm tall enough. And I stopped growing at that point, and I just kind of held steady there. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, as you witnessed just a moment ago, uh, is still desiring to grow. Uh, and so she still, if we're walking somewhere and there's a curb and I can walk along the street and she can walk up on the curb and she can gain about four or five inches for uh, a block or so. She enjoys that. She, she likes that. Uh, if we are standing out in the lobby and I stand down the steps and she stands up on the top step, uh, she, she likes that. She likes feeling tall. Uh, there's a desire to grow. So the thing is, as Christians, sometimes we get to the point where we think we've grown enough. And as Christians, we should always desire to be growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter here is admonishing them, encouraging them as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Listen, be hungry for God. Be hungry for the word of God. Be hungry for a relationship with Christ. Be hungry for the development of Christ in your heart. He says, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And if you taste him, in Psalms he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, if you taste him, if you experience him, we'll understand how wonderful it is. Now, verse 4 changes tone a little bit. Because he comes in now and starts to introduce Christ and interject the Lord Jesus Christ into whom coming as into a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. That the Lord Jesus Christ is that precious cornerstone. But he also equates us as to building stones within uh, life. And he says, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him should not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Now notice this next statement. He says, and a stone of stumbling. The Lord Jesus Christ, to those who are religious and only see religion, but never see relationship, the Lord Jesus Christ becomes a stumbling block. Yeah. To those that want to do, instead of accepting what Jesus Christ has done, he becomes a stumbling block. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense 
even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Then he compels us to that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now listen, we are to be a, a and to understand our calling. This call is not a call like on, uh, as in an, on an individual man's life to be a pastor or to be an evangelist or to be uh, to be a, you know a, a missionary uh, things of that nature this is God's people at large we are all if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior then you are called to be a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation a peculiar people that should show forth the praises of, of uh, out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, we're supposed to be a good testimony that, that shows the light of Christ to a dark world, and that's what's peculiar about us. We like to look, and some will look at that verse and say, see, we're supposed to be a peculiar people. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to go out and try to be the weirdest person in the room. Okay, it means we're supposed to go out in something about our, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we live our life, our morality, our speech, our, our love for God. That sets us apart culturally and distinctly within the workplace and when our family lives with those who are not being obedient to the Lord and following after him, that they would look at our lives and they would say, there's something different about you. The lost person may not understand what that is. The lost person may not, they, they, they'll struggle to get it. But my life speaks Christ. And the Christian life should breathe out the, the, the power and the blessing and the love of God. Now notice in verse 10 he says, which in time past were not a people but now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And isn't it amazing? Now, once you trust Christ as your Savior, if I'm going through life indulging in my desires, my flesh desires, then I am creating a war within my soul between the spirit that the Holy Spirit of God has regenerated uh, and the soul uh, and the old nature that's there. There's a struggle going on. And if I go out and I'm engaging in a life with Christ and I'm trying to learn about God and I'm trying to live my life for God, but yet I am living carnally and I am pursuing the things of this world rather than pursuing uh, the, the rela relationship with Christ, then I'm creating a conflict within my spirit and the spirit of God. There's a war going on. Why can't I have peace, Pastor? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, you know, serve God, live for God, but there's no peace in my heart. And there's this constant, examine what you're really pursuing. If I'm really pursuing the Lord, I can find peace even in turmoil. But if I'm doing religious activity in an, in an attempt to appease my conscience or to try to get to know God, but going about it, my way instead of God's way, then I'm creating a spiritual battle within my heart and a war within my soul. Uh, and so he says, have your conversation. Conversation almost always in the New Testament means lifestyle. Seldom does it mean simply a, a talk, a dialogue between two or more people. 
It means much more than that. It is my testimony, my lifestyle. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice the point here. My life should take the criticism and the, and the injustice or the, uh, or the unfair treatment of a lost world and my response and my walk with God should then turn that around so that they see Christ. And so he talks about here, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. My, my godly lifestyle, our chaste words, our spiritual relationship with Christ showing through in our life puts to silence the foolishness of man. Those that deny God can't deny that God is in his people, when his people walk with him. They can try, but in their heart, they know that there's something real about you. And that's what God is trying to accomplish in our lives. For in so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, and not using your liberty for the cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. We have great liberty in Christ to be used to honor and glorify him, not to go out and indulge in our own fleshly desires. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. I have those verses, those three verses bracketed off in my Bible and I have outwritten beside it Joseph. Why? Because Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Joseph is uh, an example in the Old Testament of how Jesus would present and what he would go through in the New Testament. He was wrongfully accused. He was banished and sold into slavery. He was uh, made a slave in Potiphar's house. He was then wrongfully imprisoned. And at the age of 17, he was ostracized and rejected of his own, his own brothers, and sold into slavery. And at the age of 30, God miraculously raises him up out of a prison and makes him the second most powerful man in all the world to demonstrate the power of God. And so he, he, anyone in the Old Testament, and there are several others, but it, more than anyone else in my heart of mine, Joseph exemplifies the example of what Peter's trying to communicate here. No one in that era was treated more unfairly than Joseph. No one was treated more cruelly. No one was, uh, was uh, treated more unjustly. But never one time do you see Joseph complain. Never one time does he cry out to God and, and, and argue or complain or say, God, how could you do this to me? He bore it patiently. He endured suffering silently. And he let God uh, do in his life what only God could do in his life. 
And because of that, he, was, he raised up from a low-level slave in Potiphar's house to ruling his house. Because of that, when treated unjustly again and in prison, he started out in the, the, the dungeon of the dungeon, if you will. Uh, and uh, in a short time, God raised him to essentially, as a prisoner, running the prison because of his character and because of his conversation, because of his testimony for God. Now notice in verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. Did you catch that? For here to suffer unfairly were ye called. Sometimes we think that God has done us an injustice when we're treated unfairly, when we're wrongly accused, when, whenever uh, people treat us uh, maliciously, when people speak out against our faith. Those things are only going to increase in the days ahead, by the way. Ahead, by the way. The people aren't going to love Jesus more as we move forward, culturally speaking. They're going to love the God of this world and the gods of this world and how he manifests himself more. But they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be rejected and with us with him as we stand with him and live through him. Who did no sin, verse 22, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now we're talking specifically, of course, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own, uh, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray but are now returned to the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. And so when we look at this message that Peter's communicating to these new believers, these immature at least believers, uh, and he is communicating to them, listen, you're here in a Gentile world under Roman rule and you are defying all of their cultural religious entities. The acceptance of one Jesus as God flies in the face of all of Judaism and it flies in the face of all of the Roman God system. You stand here isolated and alone. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't like it. Don't expect them to love you, to love this about you. Don't expect them to treat you fairly. Now, we, we all want to be treated fairly. There's just something about us. The younger that you are, the, the bigger of a deal that becomes. I think as we get older, we just kind of figure out. You know, I remember, uh, you know, as a child, not only being told, but then turning around and telling, and now as a grandparent, telling again. That new generation, those little children that are coming up, when they don't like something because something happened that wasn't fair, and we all say and have heard these words at various stages, life's not fair, get over it. Life's not fair. Then why let the unfairness of life defeat us as Christians? Why let the unfairness of life sour us and make us angry at God? Why let that which is unfair cause us to question God's love for us? Listen, it's an unfair world. That's just part of the curse of sin on the earth. And when you get down to it, there's a lot of different 
uh, angles that we approach things and things we, we tend to make things really complicated that are really simple. There is a sin curse on the earth and it brings sickness and it brings death and it brings heartache and it brings maliciousness and it brings all of this evil. And when we sinned, we brought that into the world. How could God let that happen? God didn't let that happen. We let that happen. God said, I give you this place that's perfect. Don't mess it up. We said, let's see how fast we can mess it up. And so let's do things our way instead of trusting in God's way. And then we want to turn the tables and say that what th bad things happen in our life, that they're not fair. Now, now, admittedly, as a Christian, you're going to have to endure some unfairness. Life's not fair. And, and our sense of, hey, I was treated differently than this person over here or this group over here or this. And it's not untrue. But I can't control that. I don't have to answer for that. I, I'm glad this morning that whenever, whenever Pedro comes in and lashes out at the pastor and, and tells everybody in the youth group what a creep the pastor is and how mean he is and how uh, this and that and the other, that I don't have to answer to God for what Pedro said. But I do have to answer to God for how I respond. Now, I want to tell you this morning, I don't always respond the best. As I suspect you don't either. But God is communicating here and Peter's trying to help them to understand that, listen, you, you want to be treated fairly and I understand. But life's not fair. And you come to a place where this is just the way that it is. The world and life is unfair. Realize it. And realize that in that statement, there is a question that comes about. And the question is this, how am I as a Christian expected to respond to unfairness? How would God expect me to respond to this? And what is God's expectation for my life? When we talk about unfairness, we're simply talking about people that would give a, a report against us that's not honest. You understand too, this is, this is kind of a, a side note here just real quick. I try not to chase too many rabbits, but whenever you, uh, whenever you see a lot of times, especially in the Old Testament, that the kings got a good report, good doesn't mean it was a report that they liked. Good meant that it was accurate. And so how does God want me to respond and how accurate, how am I going to understand accurately what God wants me to do? Well, verses 18 and 19 tell us this. That I am commendable in God's sight if I endure harsh treatment. That when I stand up as a Christian and I exemplify the characteristics that Joseph showed us and then Jesus showed us, that that's acceptable to the Lord. Uh, and so that, that's a good thing. And it is expected for me, in verse 20, to endure harsh correction. It's acceptable to God for me to endure unfairness. In other words, when I'm, when I'm treated un harshly because of my own misdeed, that's not unfair. That's what I deserve. And, I, and when we understand that, we tend to endure that a little bit better. When we come into a place where we're in a mode where 
uh, you know, this is getting corrected. Something that we did is being adjusted or uh, we're being set straight on something. Brother Tuffy used to say uh, that we were getting a life lesson. And so, uh, you know, somebody was teaching us a life lesson. Uh, and so uh, when you're going through those types of things, we may not like it, but we can look at the situation and we can say, yeah, well, I, I kind of deserve that. And we can, we can endure that better, generally speaking. And so we can kind of humble ourselves before the Lord and just say, okay, I don't like this, but maybe it's what I need to hear. On the other hand, when something comes about that's completely off base or unfair, that's another story. What did God say? Notice verse 20. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? You, 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 got, you got chewed out. You got spanked a little bit because you did wrong and you took it. Well, bully for you. And so what's the big deal? We just got what was coming and we took it well. That's what we're supposed to do. And God just looks at it and says, hey, that's the way that it is. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. When that injustice comes and I just exude Christ, then God is pleased and God is glorified. So how is that supposed to look, Pastor? What, what am I supposed to do? What is it that God wants me to do? Well, when treated unfairly, first of all, take it patiently. It's going to happen. It's unfortunate when it does. It's hard and it grinds against our spirit and our soul when it does. But he tells us here again in verse number 20. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Listen, Joseph did it. Jesus did it. Peter ties it directly. Now, I can't say in verses 18 through 20 that, that's, that Joseph is specifically who had, Peter had in mind, is that he's communicating here. But I, I believe that the character traits of Joseph fit. So, for example's sake, and there are others as well, but they showed us a better way. They showed us a way to please God. They showed us a way to honor God in the midst of suffering. And so when we're treated unfairly, bear it patiently. Why? Why should I take that? Because everything in us says not to take it, right? Everything in us says stand up for yourself. Everything in us says defend yourself. Everything in us says fight back. But what is it that God expects? Well, he lays this out for us here. Why should I bear it patiently? Well, first, because it's commendable with God. God said, that's what I want you to do. That's what I'll bless you for doing. That's what shows Christ. Remember, and we'll look at this a little bit closer in just a moment. But do I want to be a stumbling block? And so... It's commendable with God. Why else, Pastor? Why should I take this? Well, secondly, I should take it because it's my calling. Notice again in verse number 21. For even herein too were ye called. It's not, he's not talking to an individual. He's talking to Christendom at large. He's not talking to a specific church. He's talking to us. He's talking to believers in Christ. 
he's talking to us and he's showing us the way of Christ. And he says, listen, bear it patiently. It's commendable with God. Bear it patiently. It's your calling. It's what I've called you to do. I've called you to show the world me. Jesus says, when people look at you, they should see me. I don't want to look at Kyle and see Kyle. I want to look at Kyle and see Jesus. We are to show the world Christ. Why else should I bear it patiently? Well, third of all, consider that it was his example. It was the example of Jesus. Again in verse number 21. For even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. He tells us just very bluntly, this is what I did as an example to you, follow me. Follow me. What I've shown you, what I've gone before and showed the way, I've led you in this way. Everything that Jesus went through was either to make our atonement or to show us as an example how to live the Christian life. And so he says, I've demonstrated this for you. It, it's his example. Fourthly, consider this. And this is the end result of this. It's commendable with God. It's our calling. It was Jesus' example. Now, in this fourth thing, he tells us why it's our calling and why it was the example that Jesus gave us. It puts to silence foolish men. Back up again to verse number 15. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now I have time to go back and re-preach the message from Wednesday night. But the fool has said in his heart there is no God. A fool not being identified as someone that's silly, someone that is not serious, someone that is uh, uh, um, you know, mentally deficient. The fool is that person that rejects God. So he's talking about an attack from those that are rejectors of Christ. And he says that your life, your suffering, your being the example and living the example that I gave you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. <coughs> Does that mean that those foolish men are going to come to Christ? Not necessarily. <clears throat> and in most cases, not likely. But I tell you who will. That person over there that's trying to figure things out, that's watching their attack, and that's watching our response. That person that's watching how we're treated unfairly and how we respond to it by the grace of God and seeing the maliciousness with which we're attacked. When I respond in a way that pleases God, that person that is reached, that, that's, that's afflicting me probably won't come to Christ. But some will. Look at the Apostle Paul. Do you not understand or think that the testimony of Stephen in that pit, while Paul is there, the Bible says giving consent, holding the garments. I personally believe that what he's indicating when it says give, give consent, that Paul actually gave the order. Now I could be wrong about that and if you disagree with me on that, that's fine. But I believe it's more than he was just standing there. He has too much power. He has too much authority immediately after he's persecuting the church of Christ. Uh, I, I, and as he looks here and, and Paul demonstrates in Romans whenever he wrote Romans that, that, that he owes a debt 
Not just to God, but to those that he persecuted. Their suffering impacted him. And as a converted Christian who met Christ and who was transformed by Christ, he always had in his heart's mind and eye what he had done and how they had responded. He was in large part prepared to meet Christ by the way in which those that he persecuted suffered. How they endured it patiently. It puts to silence foolish men. Listen, I can't get the people on the TV to shut up. But I can live in such a way that causes a reasonable person that's watching and comparing what's being reported in reality of life. They can see the contrast and Jesus is lifted up in it and they come to Christ. When treated unfairly, bear it patiently. Secondly, this morning, <clears throat> how do I do that? I mean, it just begs the question. Okay, bear it patiently. God's pleased. He called me to it. Jesus gave me an example of it. It, it puts the silence foolish men, but pastor, come on, how do I do that? How do I take it? Consider what he says here. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter in, in verse 17. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And we don't have time to read through all of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Please take that and study it on your own if you will. But he says it's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So what do I do? How do I do that? Well, first of all, I would say this. Accept it, or as, really as part of the main point here. When treated unfairly, accept it as the will of God. See, it's not easy, but if I understand that it's the will of God, if I understand that this is what God has ordained for me, I have to accept it as God's will. Not his word, we've got it wrong up there, but his will. Accept it as the will of God. Why? How can I do that? Well, trust him. It really gets down to an issue of that. It's that simple. It's an issue of trust. Do I trust the Lord? Do I, I don't have to like what he's doing in my life as long as I trust what he's doing in my life. And so God's not, listen, growth is not usually, there's a lot of times in things that grow us that are not comfortable. I'm either going to fight against it or I'm going to embrace it. And so, you know, I, I think about Brother, uh, Brother Buck, whenever, not, whenever we moved here 10 years ago in August the 19th, we, we pulled in, I think our first Sunday was August the 19th, so we pulled in with a truck on the 17th or 18th, and uh, the deacons were all there to welcome us and help us unload the truck. And quite honestly, I was wiped out. It was August, I, I, whenever we loaded the truck the day before, or, or that, yeah, the day before, I was in the truck literally the whole day. My boys had been off doing an outreach program, Brother, same thing Brother Trevon did all summer, and they, they got home in Arkansas uh, the day before we loaded the truck, and we loaded the truck and we came here. So I had everything pre-staged, ready to go, and I'm telling them, bring me this, bring me that. I, it was 100 degrees, I never came out of the truck. I was dehydrated, I, was, I stunk, I was soaked from head to toe, I was wiped out. We kept clothes out, took showers, slept on the floor, got up the next morning and drove to Baytown. When I got here, I had, a, I had loaded the truck in such a way that we could just pull mattresses off the back of the truck 
Usually I put that kind of stuff in the front. But I, I, I'm thinking I'm going to pull those off. We're going to throw them on the floor. We're going to sleep. And the next day after we get a day's rest, after driving eight or ten hours down here, then, then we'll unload the truck. But I pulled in. And there's Brother Tuffy and Brother Buck and Brother Lynn and Brother Phil. Uh, and, uh, and I think it was just them four because Brother Joe Busby was the other deacon. And at that point, he was, uh, he was about to go home to be with the Lord. Uh, and so I think we got here August. He went home to be with the Lord just before around Thanksgiving time that year. And so they're there and they're ready to go. And so I'm just like, okay, here we go. And so we got the truck unloaded and we got all this big mess. And I'm just like... Uh, I'm drenched again. We're just wiped out. We're drained. Uh, we're we're kind of going through this, uh, and and it's we're making this massive move. We don't know how things are going to go. How are we going to handle this? Well, we're just going to trust the Lord. Trust Him. When we when we left our ministry there, we didn't know what was next. It's not generally the way that you leave someplace. You generally know where you're going to go before you before you go. We didn't. We just wanted to trust the Lord. And we just wanted to follow his lead. Listen, accept the will of God. When God brings about and makes apparent his will, follow it. Why? Trust him. The shepherd knows best. Notice what he says in verse 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Do I trust the shepherd? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd? Amen. Do I trust him? But, but what about when the shepherd bops me on the head? If the shepherd knocked me in the back of the head, I needed to be knocked in the back of the head. Yeah. If the shepherd came and grabbed me up and carried me back, I needed to be grabbed up and carried back. When the shepherd picks up the shears and starts shearing the sheep, they need to be sheared. We fight against what God wants to do in our life because it's uncomfortable. That's good. I wanted to fight against unloading the truck, but I'm looking here at these four men and I'm thinking, we're just going to do it. Why? It's uncomfortable. Listen, what, Christian growth is seldom comfortable. Healing is seldom comfortable. And I'm watching Brother Buck as he's helping unload the truck and he's limping. And the longer we go, the more he's limping. Come to find out he needed to have his hip replaced. Has surgery, have his hip replaced. At that point, he's like 66, I think. 67 when he has his hip replaced. I'm thinking he's, he's probably going to walk with a limp forever. But he rehabbed it. It didn't, it wasn't comfortable. But because he was willing to suffer the pain of rehab, you could never know that he had a hip replaced now. And now he's like 90. So, I mean, it's like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have a, a guy, a kid I went to high school, or I went, when we first, when our family first got involved in church, we started going to Christian school, there was a, a family that we got close to, and I mean, that first year, we, we, we lived an hour, drove at like 6 in the morning to Brother Ed and Miss Rita's house. Then this other family gathered there, and we waited about 45 minutes, and then we drove an, another hour to the school. And we all rode together. Sometimes, uh, 
some of our family would drive, sometimes their family would drive. So we were, we were pretty good friends there for a couple of years. And one of those guys, two of them have, have passed away early. But one of them, he lost a leg. And I haven't seen him or had any contact with him since I was a kid, but Brother Ed ran into him several years ago, and, and they were talking, and he said, yeah, I was, I, if I think the story goes, if I remember it right, he, was, he loved baseball, he got hit in the leg, he was a good pitcher, he, a ball came back, line drive right into his leg, uh, and so hit his leg, and he ended up losing his leg because of it. So, but whenever he's telling Brother Ed the story, Brother Ed said, but you didn't limp when you walked up here because he lost his leg up, up high. And he said, no, he said, if you, if you, if you do the rehab and you're, not, and you're not lazy in the way that you walk, it's built in such a way that it looks and feels natural. So people that limp really bad, he says, they, they always, it's because they're, they're lazy about the rehab or they're lazy about the way that they walk around. And so he just was fairly young when it happened and made a point that he wasn't going to walk that way for all of his life. And he, he said it was very painful. It was excruciating. It was hard to get up and make myself stay focused and uh, to stay doing what I was, uh, what I was going to do. Uh, he said, but I just decided that I was going to do it. Why? Because I had to go through the process. I had to be willing to bear the pain so that I could gain my mobility back. Too few Christians are willing to endure hardship to experience the growth that God wants to put in our life. Do we trust the shepherd? Sometimes the shepherd will do things that seems kind of cruel to a wayward sheep. And, but it's for their protection. Do I trust him? The shepherd knows best. Except that it's the will of God. Secondly, I would say this about that, the, about the second point here. Stay on God's side. Stay on God's side. Notice again in chapter 3 in verses 9 through 12. He says, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. The thing about inheriting a blessing is that means that the blessing's coming later. I'm not going to be blessed for it necessarily right now. I'm going to inherit the blessing. I'm going to get it later. But again, this is what God called me. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. And his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew or avoid evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Chase after peace. Don't get your pound of flesh. Don't get even. Don't retaliate. This is God's will. I accept it as God's will. I want to stay on God's side of the equation and not the side of my flesh. Then thirdly, I'd say this as far as, again, with accepting it as the will of God. Rejoice at a God-given opportunity. This is an opportunity from God. Notice again in chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So he's, I mean, he's painting a dark picture here. Be not afraid of their terror. This is beyond just verbal abuse. This is physical life-taking at times. They may be murdered. They may be imprisoned. They may be burned alive. They may be fed to wild animals. All of those things happen. And he's saying, uh, be not afraid of their terror. Neither be troubled. Just trust the Lord. 
rejoice at your God-given opportunity. In chapter 4, again in verses 12 through 14, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. And if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. When treated unfairly, accepted as the will of God. Okay, pastor, so I'm going to bear it patiently. And the way that I'm going to do that is just accepting that it's the will of God. But why? Why would God expect this? Why would God ordain this? What? Good is going to come out of this. Thirdly, this morning, consider this. Again, in chapter 3, in verse number 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Why should I do this? Why would God require this? And I would say this, be a bridge, not a roadblock. See, in our text in, in chapter 2, we're told not to be a stumbling block. That Jesus is a stumbling block. He is a rock of offense. He is the chief cornerstone. But we are lively stones. We are part of the structure that God is building in his kingdom and in this life. And he is the head of the corner and everything is built off of him. But we're part of that structure. And as part of that structure, as we love the Lord and as we endure the hardship and we follow his example, he's saying, listen, my word, who I am, what I've done is a stumbling block to those that are caught up in religion or caught up in culture or caught up in the ways of man. Uh, and so don't be a stumbling block. Be a bridge. I don't need someone to burn bridges between me and them. I'm already a stumbling block. I need someone to build bridges toward, between me and them. When treated unfairly, be a bridge, not a roadblock. Three thoughts about this this morning will be done. First of all, react if I react as the world, I will block the road to Christ. When I'm treated unfairly, if I react like the world reacts, I will block the road to Christ. And instead of being a bridge, I become a roadblock. Listen, this, the gospel is already a stumbling block. Don't let my spirit block the road. There's already a pothole there. There's already a speed bump there. There's already enough obstacles. Don't be the barricade that prevents someone from coming and finding Christ. Don't let my conversation, my testimony, my way of speaking, my response, my reaction to unfair treatment, to, uh, to uh, being attacked, uh, be something that causes others to say, Whoa, wait a minute, that's a roadblock. I'm not going there. I don't want any part of that. If that's, what, if that's the way Christians act, then I want no part of it. Don't be that person. If I react as the world, I, begin, I become a block, a roadblock to Christ. Secondly, it's an unusual response. An unusual response in crisis always provokes questions. You see, here's what happens. Somebody sees us treated unfairly 
and they see us lash out and defend ourselves like the world, they just say, okay, that guy got what was coming to him. Good for them. But if I respond in the way that Christ responded, they don't understand that. They don't understand kindness to unfairness. They don't understand compassion to maliciousness. They don't understand a soft answer to a hateful provocation. When I respond the way Jesus responded, the person that's out there on the periphery watching has questions provoked in their heart. What, what's the big deal about that, Pastor? Because when somebody starts asking questions, they actually start listening to the answer. You see, I can stand up here this morning and I can thunder away truth all day. But if I'm not, as a person sitting in the pew, asking questions, not really going to receive much of what's being given. But when I see something that's unusual, when I see something that's different, when I see something unexpected, when I see something that is in some ways and in some cases miraculous, there are questions provoked in my heart. And what this world needs is to look at my life and to look at your life and to look at this church and to look at other churches that represent truly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, they're behaving in a way that I don't understand. How is that possible? And why is that possible? And they have peace in their heart. They're under attack, but yet they're at peace. They're hated, but yet they love. They're treated unfairly, but yet they show forth a, a grace that I don't understand. And they begin to ask questions. That person asking a question now is ready to listen. See, I can go to that person out on the street and I can say, hey, do you want to go to heaven? Yes, well, you're, you have to realize you're a sinner uh, and you've sinned and uh, you have to confess it and forsake it and trust Christ and how dare you call me a sinner? But that person that comes and says, I saw you treated horribly and you acted so graciously. How did you do that? Well, Christ lives in me. Amen. How does Christ live in you? Well, he drew me. I was searching for something that was missing and he spoke to me. How did, it, how did that look? What it, well, when I saw him and I saw him in his perfection and his love and his holiness, I began to realize that I'm lacking. I began to realize there's something deficient about me. The Bible calls that sin. And the Bible tells us that, that all of us have that deficiency. We're all sinners. But he loved us in our, while we were yet in our sin. He loved us. And he demonstrated his love to us. And he compelled us. And he suffered. Because he loved us so much. And because of that, I realized that I couldn't fix myself. But he wanted to fix me. And the heart is open when questions are provoked. And the truth then finds fertile ground in which to light. And the word of God is poured on to water it. And our conversation and our spirit and our testimony cultivate it and nurture it. So that as the son of God shines on it, that seed of the gospel can germinate and can begin to grow in the heart. And someone can come to Christ. Why would God want me to be 
treated unfairly? Why would he let such a thing happen to me? What's his will? How in the world? Why, Pastor? Would God ever let that be his will? Because there's somebody out there watching that needs thoughts of uh, genuine questions provoked in their heart and their mind. And the only way that they'll ever come to ask the question is if they see something that they don't understand. And what they don't understand more than anything else is whenever they're attacked or when you're attacked maliciously and unfairly and you don't respond the way that they expected. But God and the grace of God comes shining through you. If I react as the world, then I'm going to be a roadblock to Christ. But if I offer a Christian response, a Christ-like response, that unusual response in that crisis moment will provoke questions. Why would he want me to go through such a thing? Because he needs somebody to be a bridge to the lost. Jesus has done everything that is necessary. But he needs someone to go and carry the message. He needs someone to go and show the way. He needs someone to go and say, this is my God and my Savior and our Creator. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. And he's done everything. And he loves you. Be the bridge. A am I this morning a roadblock or a bridge? As a Christian in my daily life, in my reactions to difficult situations. And honestly, this morning, I think if we're, I think, truly, I think if we're honest with ourselves and with the Lord, I don't think that there's anybody in here that could say, I'm never a roadblock, I'm always a bridge. Sometimes the flesh gets in the way and we become a massive roadblock. May we humble ourselves before God. Say, God, I'm not going to fight the hardship in my life. I'm not going to be upset or feel as if you don't love me because my life got hard over the last several days or weeks or months or maybe even in some cases years. What I do want to do is show the world Christ. That my response be a response that they can understand so that I'm a bridge to the lost and I'm a bridge to the backslidden and I'm a bridge to the discouraged and I'm a bridge to the heartbroken and I'm a bridge to the bereaved and I'm a bridge to whoever, Lord Jesus, you need to speak to. Whether they be lost, whether they be saved, whether they be flourishing or whether they be struggling, I want my life my testimony, my response to be a bridge of Christ to them. He comes to us and he just says, sometimes this is my will for you. It's the example that I set for you. And there's a world that desperately needs to see me in you. Will you let me? Will you let me afflict you so that they might see me. So pastor, that's a hard thing. I, I know. That's why he said in verse 20, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Listen, this morning as we close, I can complain about unfairness or I can seize the moment of opportunity to make a difference for the Lord. 
Will we be miserable in our complaining? Or will we seize our opportunity?